Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode one of the Wealth Code podcast. I'm excited to kick this off and start introducing you to some incredible experts. We are kicking this off with a woman who is brilliant, humble, and hilarious. I admire the work that she's doing, and I love how she's making health easy to understand. Dr. Carrie Jones is a naturopath specializing in hormonal, adrenal, and thyroid health, and is the medical director of Precision Analytic, the creators of the amazing Dutch Hormonal Panel Test. She's been practicing for more than a decade, and she blends together the latest research with natural, connected thinking, like incorporating things like sunlight into her practice. Dr. Carrie is the queen of hormones, and she's my go-to expert for anything hormone health-related, so I thought it'd be fitting to have her on as our first guest. Hormones are incredibly misunderstood and undervalued. We as women are said to be hormonal, as if that's a bad thing, rather than part of the natural life and monthly cycles that we each have. Many of you may have been told that you have hormonal imbalances, so this might be an interesting conversation for you to listen in on. In this discussion, we chat about the history of women's research, misinformation in women's health education, the importance of circadian rhythm and hormonal balancing, and what are some of Dr. Carey's truths that she wishes young women would know more about. Enjoy the chat, and let's get this journey started. Carrie, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining, and I'm excited. I am thrilled. I am honored, honestly. Um, <laughs> all of the above, all of the above. Yeah, so let's just jump right into it. I mean, I think the reason that we wanted to chat and bring you on as our first guest was because ultimately you are a mover and shaker in this space, and you bring this beautiful com- combination of the science and the research and being a doctor and having had patients for 12 years, or I don't even know how many years now, uh, 15 years, exactly. (laughs) And running clinics. So it seems like you've seen many elements of this ecosystem. So just to get things started, I think the first question is, what have you seen that's actually changed in the past decade with respect to women's health? Oh man, that's such a great question. I honestly, I think the biggest change I've seen is the empowerment that women have had when it comes to their health with social media and with so many platforms now around education, so many amazing books that have come out. I really feel like women now don't just accept, well, I was told I was normal, so I must be normal. And then they just hard stop. Like they just, they're like, all right, well, I guess I just suffer. Now women are getting told, well, you know, I don't know what to do, or your test results normal, or you're just tired for whatever reason. Now women are like, nope, that's not acceptable. There has to be something else. And they're asking questions. They're asking hard questions. They're pushing, they're requesting testing. They're using the online sphere to get to order testing, to research themselves. I have great people who are like, you know, learning PubMed to look up research articles. And I just love it because that wasn't happening 10 years ago. And there's a lot more to go. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But when when I read the comments, when I read the DMs, when I talk to people, other, you know, women are just like, apparently I'm my own biggest advocate. So I am working hard to advocate for myself. I'm like, apparently you are. I am so proud. So that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. And I think I like that. There is an element of the the patient is a new doctor, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. us starting to take control of our own health rather than this idea of outsourcing our health, which I think has kind of happened in the past couple of decades mm-hmm. of saying, oh, okay, well, you know, I don't know anything. 
and there's these specialists and they've been doing tens of years of doctoral school, then therefore they may know much more than I do. Right. Well, in reality, I'm living with my own body. <laughs> I'm the one that actually has to deal with these symptoms and I track them or don't track them. I I know when then they when they come up and then randomly I go to the doctor and they're no longer there. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Always the case. Where do you see health going? Where do you see research going? Because you mentioned that there's a long way for us to go. You know, interestingly, I think research, now I'm seeing all the ways you can monitor yourself and track yourself, you know, the continuous glucose monitoring, the wearables, the wearable devices, the things you can do at home from testing, like blowing into something or collecting at home and mailing it off. I mean, it's become really exciting in the technology world of how much data we can gather about our own body just at home, you know, just by doing something at home versus having to go in for a cl to a clinic, to an appointment, to a hospital, to something like that when you're just trying to gauge your everyday, even something as simple as temperature tracking with your cycle, you know, just small things that might be are normal, like yours and mine, but to when women learn it for the first time, like, you mean I can track my cycle and I can guesstimate, like if I can know when I ovulate, I mean, just like, mind blow. I know when I ovulate, I'm like, yes, you can test this in the privacy of your own home. You can track your temperature you can wear a device, you know, like a ring or a watch or something that can tell you your temperature change. You can follow your symptoms. You can feel your mucus or not. And there, it's just like, oh my gosh. And then that just gives them so much more empowerment to know. And then they want to know more, right? Like, well, I didn't get those symptoms this month. What does that mean? Why, why is my period worse? Oh, I didn't get those symptoms. I must not have ovulated. What does that mean? What does progesterone actually do? What is this part of my cycle actually called? What's the luteal phase? And it becomes this whole scientific exploration, but about themselves. And so I see that whole technology realm just really exploding because people want answers. They don't want to rely necessarily on maybe their doctor to, you know, they just can't provide every detail. They just can't provide 24 seven guidance. And so when you, when a lot of these cool technology things can do it for us and help us, help guide us, help point us in the right direction. I just love it. I think the more knowledge is better. And do you find that women are starting to get more open with sharing their own health information? Yes. I think social media has really allowed that to explode. And it's allowed women to connect on multiple platforms, whether it's in chat groups, in Facebook communities, just in the comment section. I have women in my comment section that just go back and forth. They have these really great conversations like, this is what's working for me. This is what I've tried. What have you tried? What have you seen? Just about maybe just anything, any kind of topic. And as a result, by sharing and, and people who are creating entire accounts around whatever they're going through just to share their story with the hopes of helping somebody. It's drawing in huge followers because those women are suffering the same. They have the same symptoms and they don't know where to go and they're struggling. Their typical route, their typical conventional medicine is maybe not helping them the way they wanted to or hoped. And so they are turning to these platforms to find a community to run checks and balance off of them. Like, these are the symptoms I'm having. Is that what you had too? You know, this is the supplement my doctor put me on. Are there known side effects or whatever it is? And I just find that really great and empowering for women. There's always, there's of course an, an extremist, don't get me wrong, right? Dr. Google is still Google. <laughs> right. And just because you're in an amazing chat room or, you know, community doesn't mean that everybody in there is really an expert. If they're only giving you their experience. Their experience may not be the same as your experience, right? And so that can be challenging. But what I love are that all these communities 
are so helpful. They're so helpful at like guiding and directing and suggesting and calming and nourishing women. I just love seeing that. I just love seeing the women's collective come together and be like, yeah, I'm not standing for this anymore. Like, I want to get healthy. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I think, I think it's, you know, somebody asked me before of, do you think that there's an element of so many different things coming together right now that mm-hmm. it's, prime time for it. And what I mean by that, and I think it's absolutely the case, right? Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, the Me Too movement that happened. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. wearable technology. You've got communities and people wanting to share. You've got people just saying, I'm sick and tired of realizing that, you know, pills are not going to be the answer, mm-hmm. right? You know, and it seems like, to me at least, it seems like it's this, it's been bubbling, bubbling, mm-hmm. bubbling, bubbling. Mm-hmm. And now all these different elements, all the different puzzle pieces are coming together mm-hmm. such that, it's time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's time to say, all right, you know, let's not have a stigma to say, I am my symptoms and right. therefore feel like you can't speak about it. So, you know, postpartum depression, something that I would say decade ago, women didn't want to talk about because mm-hmm. t- there's sensitivity towards it, mm-hmm. or there's, wait, what you don't, you know, you don't want to hold your child or, you know, it was so many different things. Right. And now I think women are starting to say, wait, there are so many different elements in the environment, you know, that probably are impacting me and my hormones or, and how I'm thinking, I'm not my symptoms and therefore I can probably do something about it. Right. And you see it everywhere. I would agree with you when you just watching the internet, right? Like you and me being really in the space, I'm seeing the questions of women posting all the time, seeking answers. Mm. And even though I can't give the medical advice every time. It is really encouraging to me when they're out there seeking. They're like, this is what happens to me. What does this mean? Where can I go? Point me in the right direction. Send me a podcast. What group can I join? I want to learn more. I'm not accepting the status quo. Like this isn't working for me. I'm not settling. And I think that's really, really exciting. And you're right. I think it's like the perfect storm of of events, but it's like a good storm. It's a happy storm. It's a storm with rainbows. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, shining stars and stuff. (laughs) Let's celebrate it. Yeah, exactly. In terms of research as well, what from a women's research standpoint, I mean, one of the things that I was looking into before this is the history of research for women, right? And I think there was something that basically said that in the 1970s, childbearing women had been basically removed and said, you can't be part of clinical Mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the nineties, it started to become, you know, more apparent that women really aren't the same as men. One case in point being heart attacks and how heart attacks present themselves in men versus women. In the early 2000s, I think it was, they noticed that women and men, while they were both being part of studies, they're kind of 50, 50, you know, Mm -hmm. included in studies, Mm -hmm. the analysis was actually more skewed towards men. Right. seems like, you know, there's, there's an understanding, I think that, you know, in the past, we perhaps haven't researched women because there's kind of bigger fish to fry in the sense of bigger health issues, right? Right. A, a health issue that impacts both sexes is all obviously there's a better return of investment on that research than just, you know, a subset of something just on PCOS or just PMDD or just something that's women's focused, but you know, that's the history. Where do you see the future going? I think it's really exciting. There is a, well, there's the saying that a lot of my colleagues say that women are not small men when it comes to research, right? And so we can't assume just because 
a man presented this way or a, a study says like this is how it presents you gave a great example heart attacks this is how heart attacks present and blanketly say it's in all genders and now we know that like uh, oopsies that's not the case at all <laughs> like actually the heart attack is often presents very differently in women and that's why women get blown off Compared to men, men get the chest pain, the left side radiation, the crushing pain, um, and women don't as much. They get a lot more of like fatigue. And so it, it gets blown off and all of a sudden she's had a heart attack. But there's a great researcher. Her name is Lisa Muscani, and she's an all-women's Alzheimer's researcher. And she's written a book called The XX Brain, and it's all about the female brain, how it works, how it's different, and then Alzheimer's. And it's so fascinating when she compares men to women when it comes to the brain, but men to women when it comes to the development of dementia and Alzheimer's and how it's different and how the female brain, of course, is very different from the male brain in a lot of respects. But she only focuses on the female brain because dementia and Alzheimer's is such an unfortunately hugely prevalent problem. But a lot of research is focused and we think of, you know, dementia, we used to, we used to just think of men, we would, we would picture, you know, like our grandpa or great grandpa, and Alzheimer's, and that's what was studied. And Dr. Mascani was like, no, this, like with women, we really have to separate this out and focus on females because there our hormone makeup is different. Our brain neurotransmitters are, they're the same neurotransmitters. They just act differently because our hormones are different because we cycle. And what does that mean? How do women respond? I see that more researchers stepping up to say, no, we need to focus on this diabetes in women, right? We need to focus on whatever in women. It could absolutely be a subset of PCOS or PMDD or postpartum or endometriosis, absolutely. But it could be a autoimmune disease and women, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be include men. I'm not shunning men. I don't want people mm. to think that, but I'm just seeing, just like you're seeing more research go to how is this just affecting women versus assuming the study that was skewed to men is exactly how it's going to respond in women. And it's the same in pharmaceutical um studies, right? So I will have women that will start a medication or whatever it is, and they will say, I'm having this side effect. And their doctor will say, well, that's not possible. Hmm. That's not listed in the study. You know, like, there's no way. And then they will post it online. I'm on this medication. I'm having this side effect. And all these women are like, me too, me too, me too. I am too. That's so crazy. Me too. You know, they're getting validated, but it also, I'm like, I feel like that medication or drug or whatever it is, probably should have included more women. And then they probably should have looked at symptoms, male, female. They probably should have looked at mechanism of action, male, female, because we're going to start seeing this more and more apparent. Women are not staying quiet. They're like, this is a problem. Yeah. So I'm excited for research in women. Interesting. Is, it, is there a website for that to be able to call out whether you're having specific symptoms? Do you know? Yes, there is. And it is escaping me at the moment. Oh, we can just put it in the show notes. I know. I was like, let's put that point. in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Because um, I think that's an element, right? Of even raising your hand and saying, I'm having these symptoms. Yeah. And the more people that speak out, you're right. You can report it right to the manufacturer that, you know, the pharmaceutical company itself, you can report it to your pharmacy, your pharmacist. And I believe your pharmacist knows where to, you know, report back to. I would say most, unless it's really severe, I, I would say most probably doctors don't report side effects. Maybe if they're noticing trends, if they're noticing like every single person who does this medication is getting heartburn, they may tell their rep like, hey, I don't prescribe that anymore because everybody gets heartburn. And then it gradually gets back to the company. But as an example, but you can, you can can actually report it. You can actually get on the company's website and report side effects. Overall, as an ND, do you 
typically try and prescribe more of the natural right of, route rather than prescriptions or I try so there's a time and a place I'm not opposed to pharmaceuticals at all and where I practice in Oregon the state of Oregon I have a pretty wide scope of what I can prescribe not all states are that generous to naturopathic doctors but so but I have a lot of experience with prescribing so if somebody needs something like I'm really lucky that I can say you know what you actually do need this. I think in my best clinical interest, you actually do need this pharmaceutical. But I love that I can also say, you know what, I practice in a holistic point of view. I'm very personalized. Let's address diet, lifestyle, you know, the basic stuff. Let's see what's going on. Let me go through your health history. Let me talk about chemicals. Let's try to replace nutrients, you know, all the things. And then if in the end, I'm like, you know what, this isn't working. I think we need a pharmaceutical intervention. We can do that too. And I like that because it's, to me there, I find that there's so many people who are either on the full on kind of pharma train or yeah. the natural train. Right. And it's in reality, there's probably is a place for both, right? There is, yeah. um, you know, if you, if you don't have a thyroid, then you're going to have to take thyroid medication, right? right. right. Um, if, you know, however, could there be natural things? I think you talk a lot about like holy basil mm-hmm. and things like that, <laughs> ashwagandha, things like yeah. that, that, you know, that actually could be really quite beneficial and you don't have to go the... kind of the drug route. You could take something that's more natural. When I was in practice, I had a patient who had come to me. She had severe pneumonia. This was obviously way prior to the current pandemic. And she had pretty severe pneumonia and she was hoping for it. She was like, can't you just give me a supplement? And I'd listen to her lungs and I did all the things. And I said, no, you're actually really close to going to the hospital. Your, your oxygen's dropping. Like I need to get you on a pretty strong pharmaceutical regimen right now, or you're probably going to end up in the hospital tomorrow. So sorry, you know, astragalus is not going to do it. Echinacea is not going to do it. Vitamin C is not going to do it. And we'll do the cleanup. And she was all concerned. And she's like, well, I don't want to be on antibiotics. It'll affect my gut and it'll affect this. And I was like, I 100% get it, but you're lucky. We will do cleanup afterwards. We will work on the gut. We work on the microbiome. We will work on all that detoxification. But right now I'm trying to keep you out of the hospital. So priorities. And her husband was like, if the ND says to take the medication, like take the medication. (laughs) There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place. But then you're right. You know, somebody says I'm really stressed out. I'm like, holy basil is a favorite go-to of mine. I'm like, you know what? It's over the counter. It's a great tea. It works really well. It's generally considered safe. Do you need Xanax? Probably not. Like, let's try this other route first. You know, Xanax is great, but pretty addictive (laughs) and got a lot of other problems. (laughs) Let's go with some of the natural routes just to help bring it down a minute. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of switching over, I really like what you're saying in terms of the natural route and the Mm -hmm. natural route of things. And, you know, one of the things that you focus so beautifully on and are able to explain, I love your metaphors, by the way. I mean, the tub, (laughs) it's just, it's easy, right? That's how I think. So I'm like, well, I'll just tell everybody what I think. (laughs) Or I process. So yeah, I think maybe we can just shift over into into your area of expertise and, or one of our areas of expertise, which is hormones and kind of maybe just walk us through of 10,000 foot level, hormones 101. And hormone imbalancing. Because I think that's oftentimes when I have my girlfriends, you know, they're saying, I'm out of whack, I'm in balance. Are we just constantly in that flow and constantly trying to get ourselves into balance? And is it just one of those things where there almost is no such thing as balance? (laughs) (laughs) And we just have to keep on going back. Right. We're just we're just hoping for the best. So interesting you said that question like a year or two ago, I want to say my mom, who is my biggest fan, said to me, I love what you do. You know, I love listening to you. I don't understand anything you're saying. And she said, and in fact, I don't actually really know what a hormone is, but you say that word a lot. And I was like, 
my mom doesn't even know what a hormone and I have, I have failed. I have failed my profession. First, what I tell people is that when we say hormone, it's just a little tiny chemical messenger. It's literally just a message. It's like a text message. That's what a hormone is. It's, it's a physical text message that floats around your body and tells different things to go on or to go off and to do the things. That's what a hormone does. But when we as women say hormones, primarily we think estrogen and progesterone. But when the medical community is talking about hormones, we have multiple glands in our body that make hormones. We have thyroid gland that makes hormones. We have pancreas that makes hormones. We have obviously the ovaries and the testicles in men that make hormones. We have, we have all sorts of hormones. We have brain hormones, right? We have all these different areas of our body that make hormones. And that's collectively known as the endocrine system with an E, endocrine. And those are all our hormones. So you could feel hormonal and it's your cortisol. You could feel hormonal and it's your thyroid, it's your it's your estrogen. It could definitely be all, all, all of these. The interesting thing about your hormones though is they're never the same. <laughs> they never flatline. They are in constant motion and they follow rhythms. So if your rhythm is out, if you're natural up and down in your day or you're up and down in your cycle, as women, we go up and down in our cycle, is off, that's when we feel hormonal. So if our daily rhythm is off, if we don't get really good sleep, if we're really stressed out, if we can't fall asleep, right? If we feel groggy in the morning, that's our cortisol rhythm. And so when we feel like, oh, I feel so tired today, I feel burnt out today, I feel kind of anxious today, I feel whatever today, I didn't sleep last night. That's cortisol rhythm. And so that is a hormone. So we can be hormonally imbalanced. Women say, I have PMS. I feel just hungry. I feel moody. I am bloated. I just feel really blah today. It's generally our estrogen progesterone because those work on a much bigger monthly cycle. They go up and down at various times in the month. So it's like a roller coaster, but it's a healthy route. It's the same up down all the time. It's, there's no loop-de-loops. It's just the same up-down, right? There's no queer, crazy left turns. If your roller coaster of hormones does loop-de-loop or does left turn when it's not supposed to, then you feel it. Then you're like, what is that? I feel hormonal. Like, why was this month so much worse? Why is today so much worse? And so when someone says, I feel really imbalanced, I feel really, I'm feeling really hormonal. I'm like, all right, well, something, something took a hard left or did a loop-de-loop and you're not on your natural rhythm. You can have a healthy rhythm daily. And monthly. So it's almost like hormonal imbalance is a, you don't really get any information from it, right? right. It, yeah. To, in order for you to actually understand what to do, it would be, I am cortisol imbalanced yes. or progesterone yeah. imbalanced yep. or whatever, like a right. specific one yep. of the hormones. Yep. Thyroid, insulin, estrogen, testosterone, DHEA, yeah. all of these, they all go up and down. They all play like a big symphony in an orchestra. So they're not always on, but they're not always off. Women are amazing. <laughs> You know, like the fact that we do this day in and day out, you know, especially through our cycling years, our reproductive years, as it's called, and we should run the world because we can coordinate this in our body. <laughs> Imagine what we could do if we ran the world. <laughs> yep. Yep. Now, men, men versus women in terms of hormones and hormone imbalance, right? Yeah. Everybody talks about PMS. Everybody mm -hmm. says, oh yeah, yeah. She's, she's hormonal. Yeah. Right? I've never heard he's hormonal. Ever. And they absolutely, every, every woman, every woman who has a significant man in their life, whether it's their partner, their brother, their business partner, doesn't matter. If I say, is he ever hormonal? They're like, yes, he won't admit it, but yes, we all know men get hormonal too. They just don't have that. They never got the stigma attached to them and they don't cycle like women do, right? They don't get a period, but I have a hundred percent asked my husband before, 
are you PMSing? (laughs) I have a hundred percent asked my guy friends before who are in a bad mood. Is it the time of the month? And the funny ones are like, yeah, I guess so. Cause I am not in a good mood, <laughs> you know, or I'm not feeling it or I feel unbalanced and yeah, so menstruating. Absolutely, exactly. Men absolutely can be hormonally imbalanced. Their testosterone also goes in a rhythm. Their thyroid goes in a rhythm. Their cortisol goes in a rhythm. Their glucose and insulin go in a rhythm. So what is that rhythm? Is that also monthly? Is that more daily? Or- it's more, more daily, but they do say that men have a longer cycle. It takes about like 65 to 70, 72 days to make a sperm. So you're making them every day, but like these big sperm cycles, you know, are rhythmic. And so they can, men kind of go and this, they're just sort of, their cycles considered longer than women versus usually 28-ish days. Men can be longer, but testosterone is made every day in a rhythm. It's usually up. Testosterone in men is made in the night. And so like sleep is really important to them. So men who don't get very good sleep often wake up tired and grumpy and, you know, they tend to, they'll have weight gain issues and libido issues and erection issues and motivation issues. And so same for cortisol. The men cycle too, just a little different. And in women, it's um, it's obvious usually, right? We get a period or we don't. And so it's easier for us to check in, whereas there's no like check-in for men. There's no like let go for men to tell them. So it's almost more difficult for them to some yes. extent, potentially, yep. because there isn't a an obvious cycle that they quote unquote should be following. Right. And therefore, and there isn't a bleed or there isn't other things that are external factors that show right. them. Right. But usually it's the women in their life who can say, Oh yeah, he's hormonal. <laughs> yeah. 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 And just like there are, and just like there are women who don't have hormonal issues. You know, I definitely have women that are very in sync and doing great and very asymptomatic, no issues. And you know, men are can be too. They they're doing great, feeling great, working hard, and it's not affecting them. But for a lot of women, we get not our roller coaster takes a hard left easier because we're gender that's supposed to continue the species, right? Reproduction. And so our brain is constantly scanning us for threats, for stress, and to affect our reproduction. Whether you want to get pregnant or not, I don't care. Like, that's not the issue. It's just, we get a cycle every month and there's so, so much feedback to the brain, to the hypothalamus, like, ooh, she's kind of feeling threatened and stressed out this month. I'm not going to make her ovulate. I'm going to protect that egg, not release it because this is probably not the month she should get pregnant. And that sets off a cascade of hormonal changes. And as a result, we feel hormonal. (laughs) Yep. So basically in this time right now, we're filming this within the corona pandemic. (laughs) So right now it's very plausible that women are are going to have issues or changes within their hormonal cycle because they are, we are so stressed and the environment right now is not conducive for our bodies, or at least our bodies are saying, Hey, you know what? Maybe right now is not the time to get pregnant. And so many women, so many women, I've put it out in social media and I had so many women that are like, oh my gosh, I thought something was wrong with me. I I was two weeks late or I was a week early or my PMS was atrocious or my endometriosis was horrible this month. I thought I had everything under control. I'm like, you did. You totally did. It's not your fault. (laughs) This little virus is, you know, causing problems in more than one area. Yeah, I've noticed that for myself, I've I feel like I've got it all covered. Everything's great. And then I'm noticing that my sleep is just horrendous. Yeah. You know, I just like you, I track my sleep and it's just I'm noticing, you know, those sleep patterns, the my deep sleep, my REM sleep is just mm-hmm. completely off kilter. So while I think I might have it all under control, <laughs> then my body is saying eh, eh. your subcon- subconscious is like, that's cute. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So what kinds of I guess misconceptions or things that are out there that, you know, women or men 
think that they know about hormones. What are those misconceptions that you'd like to change or that you would, you would just say, listen, that's a complete no-no? Oh, hmm, that's a really good question. I think a lot of questions that I get are like two areas of life, either what's considered a normal period and then what is this thing called perimenopause because nobody taught me about that. And so I find in general, women's health is not very well taught in school. And actually to go back to your first, first question, I think understanding women's health, how our bodies work 101, a lot of women are discovering for the first time as adults, I, I get that feedback a lot of like, like, why didn't I learn this at 16? Or why wasn't I taught this when my period started? Or how come nobody in college said, you know what, this is what's actually happening because I'm learning this finally as a 40 year old. I'm like, yeah, why, why is this so taboo and hidden? Like it's billions of women are doing this every day. So yeah, <laughs> see what the yeah. problem is just to say it. I was going to say one thing that just fascinates me is that, you know, in middle school, we learned how to balance physics equations or, you know, chemistry equations, yeah. right? How many times have most of us used that yet? How many times do most of us wish we knew more about our period right? Yeah. or what's, or what's right, what's wrong, what's yeah. normal, what's not, what's, you know, what should we, again, should is a, is a, in quotations, right? right? What should we be feeling? But yeah, like why is it that women's health 101, right? Not even getting yeah. down to the metabolites, right? But like yeah. 101, why is that not included in our middle school or high school education? I have a lot of theories, but they're controversial. <laughs> you know, there's just so many moving Hit parts, right? Hit them. <laughs> so many moving parts to, um, Sex ed is not, well, I grew up in the South, so sex ed was just, you did not talk about that, right? Like Jesus did not want you talking about sex ed. That was going to be left to the church and to your parents. And when sex ed was allowed in the school I went to, it was taught by the football coach. No joke, the football coach who was ridiculously inappropriate. You know, I tell this story and I've told it before and people are, and other people have other just similar, you know, similar. They either went to Catholic school or they, they went, you know, whatever school it just was voted out sex ed. They didn't know, or maybe they got some basic health stuff, but they weren't allowed to say the word vagina or they weren't allowed to say, you know, whatever. And so it became the super taboo subject because the parents and the administrators made it really taboo and fought about it. And so when the parents and the administrators of the school are fighting about it, then it suddenly to the students, it's like, Oh, you know, well, if they're, if mom's upset and the principal's upset, like clearly this is not a subject we should discuss. And on the flip side, I'm like, no, unfortunately, this is a subject we should discuss from a very young age, just basic anatomy and basic physiology 101. It is what it is. Science <laughs> It is what it is. You know, these are how the ovaries work. This is how a boy makes testosterone. Like this is what a period does. This is how a woman ovulates. I have so many women when I tell them it, roughly in the middle of your month, you're going to release an egg and that's known as ovulation. And they're just like, really? Like, yep. And then when you release that egg, the hormone that's made is called progesterone. And that's when you make progesterone. You have to ovulate to make progesterone. But like, I don't make that all month long. I'm like, you don't. You actually only make it in the second half. And the second half is called the luteal phase. I have halves to my cycle, like you do. <laughs> and I'm not making fun of them I'm because it's so rampant that the misinformation, it's getting better. Women are getting more educated, but it's, I've had a lot of women that you, you said this earlier off camera, you, you know, when women are like, well, what's the follicular phase? I'm like, yeah, I get that question a lot. Like, is that before my period or after my period? I'm like, good question. It's after, it's after the part after your period. I love what you just said in that, what if people were more educated? Yeah. Imagine, I mean, yes. I mean, I grew up 
and you know, you don't talk about your period. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, because it's icky, it's mm -hmm. strange. It's just, nobody wants to hear about it. Yeah. You know, like there's shame associated with it. I mean, there's a lot, right? There's a lot yeah. of, I mean, so much just, taboo. Like, yeah. You know, the, the psychology of it as well. I feel like at least in the circles that I'm now speaking with it, it's very, very interesting to me because I think that there are a number of even men out there who are saying, actually, it would kind of be nice to know because then I know when you're going to, you know, be hormonal. I'm yeah. going to know when like to leave you alone. Right. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and there is yeah. elements to it of, well, what if it was included in the dialogue? Yeah, fine. You don't need to go into details about it if you don't want to, but yeah. even in an office setting of just saying, Hey, listen, guys, like I'm going to be working from home next week. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, especially right now seeing how a lot of us are working. I mean, yeah vast majority of people are working from home and that seems to be working. You know, right. what if we could say, Hey, listen, I'm out, you know, because I need a little bit of space and time. And anyway, anyway, yep. but I agree. Yeah. I mean, men, a hundred percent, there's a grown man that I know. He said, somebody said she had a period and he said something about bleeding out the placenta. And she was like, no, that's not what the period is. And he's like, well, don't you make a placenta every month and then bleed it out? She was like, no, <laughs> no, the placenta is the part that would go around a baby. Should I be pregnant, which I'm not. And because I'm not, I'm actually just bleeding out tissue that was built up if I were to be pregnant, but I'm not. So no, there's no placenta every month. And he just was floored, <laughs> floored. You don't, what? Don't you make a placenta every month? No. We all completely laughed. And then we were all like, oh, a grown man didn't know this. He had never been taught. He, I mean, if, he never looked it up. He didn't care, right? And he just thought that's what women did when they said they had their period is they let out a placenta every month. And I was like, no, oh, wow. We have a lot of education to do for men. We should start there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Men knew. <laughs> and also, I mean, even the education of you can't get pregnant every single day of the month, you know? That's, that's a big one. That's a big one that I think a lot of young yeah. girls don't know and probably yeah. young guys don't know as well. Yeah. So it seems like we yeah. have a lot of educating to go. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm all about that. Like 101. If we could just start with the 101 for a lot of men and women, that's sort of the big thing that I see. So yeah, you were saying about mis kind of misconceptions with, yeah. with hormones. So it was, there was an element of perimenopause as well, right? Perimenopause. Funny enough, I had a colleague of mine practices in California and her patient told her and then she passed it on to me because she thought it was hilarious. Her patient's OBGYN said perimenopause doesn't exist. And all women, all women go through menopause at 51 years old, give or take. And I was like, if I knew for a fact I was going to go through menopause at 51 years old, give or take, I would be beyond thrilled to know a date. Millions of women in this world would be like 51. I, like, I know a date because so many women are like, well, how long does this last? When does it end? When does it start? Like, how long? I'm so symptomatic. And if I could be like 51, give or take, I'd be so happy. I'm like, first of all, it does exist. Second of all, no, women do not go through menopause at 51, give or take. I have women that have gone through menopause, unfortunately, at 39. They go through premature or, you know, menopause. I have women in their 40s who are perimenopausal. I have women in their 40s who have stopped bleeding and are menopausal. I have women in their 50s who are perimenopausal. I have women in their 50s who have stopped bleeding and are menopausal. The classic definition for menopause is to go 12 months without a period, 12 whole months without a period. Now, usually it's, of course, age-related. So if somebody listening to this is like, well, crap, I'm 26 and I've gone 12 months. You're probably not menopausal. You probably have other underlying things going on. But if you're in your 40s 
or 50s and you've gone 12 full months, no period, and you are now considered menopausal. And then you'll continue to have, hopefully have no, no period. But perimenopause is that like weird roller coastery part between I'm not really reproductive anymore. So I'm transitioning into menopause and now I'm getting the hot flashes and the night sweats and the irregular cycles and the weight gain and the brain fog and, and all the like super awesome symptoms that, that women we could are, all look forward to. We could all look forward to. Exactly. Or a lot of us. The other big misconception. I have so many women that write me and go, nobody told me about perimenopause. Nobody taught me that this is going to happen. I thought something was wrong. I thought I had cancer because I was having hot flashes and night sweats at night because I Googled it and that's the first thing that shows up. 45 years old with hot flashes. Oh, you have cancer. Or you're perimenopausal <laughs> or it's your hormones. And I wish women had a much better understanding of how to prepare themselves. I wish women knew that prepare yourself for perimenopause to, and so it won't be hopefully so crazy has to start your 30s. I mean, your whole life, of course, but like as you get closer to 40, you have to be really diligent with all of your self-care, your sleep, your diet, your stress management, all those things, because you can't continue to push the boundaries of your health when you hit your 40s. And I heard that from so many patients over the years. I'm 42, right? And when I was younger, my patients would say, I hit my 45th birthday and it all fell apart. Or I hit my 50th birthday and it all fell apart. And I was like... No. <laughs> and then I hit 40 and I was like, damn it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you serious? Like some, and I still, I joke to my husband, like if I get hot at night, I wake up in the morning. I'm like, was it hot in our room last night? Did you get hot? And I'll be like, yeah, it was really hot last night. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not, yet. not yet. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's true, right? I feel like we have these different stages in our lives. Yeah. Right? Like when you hit 30, all of a sudden you can't be drinking as much. You can't, or maybe, yeah. maybe no, it's true. everybody, it's but true. right. I so, mean, yeah. I know my hangovers are horrendous yeah. now. You know, I, I noticed that weight gain is a lot easier. I noticed that, you know, it's a lot more difficult to just say, oh, well that's, you know, a couple of pounds that I want to, I want to shed. Yeah. And and it's just every single, as we get older and older, it just gets progressively more difficult. A hundred percent. And nobody t teaches us that, right? I know I wouldn't remember it in middle school or junior high or high school, but like if we just kept a program, if we just kept on it little by little, just breaking off chunks of hormones 101. And by the time you get into college, you know, women now are so much more in tune and so much more educated than they were when I went through college. And so it'd be just so helpful to know, like, look, you don't need to know this now, but just know, like th these are the changes that are going to come. So when you feel them, just remember this day in this class and this is what you need to do. Like this, this is normal and this is not. So what would be those uh, two, three tips that you would say for, uh, you know, a young girl, a girl who is, you know, just starting along in her cycle? <laughs> I feel like that's a whole book. No, I'm that just probably kidding. is. And we, we, can, we can pause on that and we can just come back on in another episode of some sort. Honestly, uh, what I would tell a young girl is I would try, I would explain to her what I would consider maybe more like normal, like you said earlier, should in quotes versus not normal. So the number of women who have severe debilitating pain every month, and they think that's normal because that's all they've ever known. And I'm like, that's not normal. I'm like severe debilitating pain, not normal. Women who just bleed through tampons and pads or cups or whatever, and they just think it's their normal. And I'm like, that's not normal. That much blood loss, there's a reason we have to do something about it. These, you know, PMDD, right? The, like just things that I don't want women to experience, or I don't want women to think, well, yeah, every month I get so depressed, I can't leave my house, and I have really dark thoughts for a day or two, and then it gets better. I'm like, that's not good. 
like that's a huge key that something is going on those two days or the days leading up to those two days. And we can work on that. There's things we can definitely try to help and implement and test for and, and try to improve that. I don't want you to go through that and at least get women from a 10 out of 10 symptom, you know, maybe to a three, right? Like I get PMS. Am I going to get ever get rid of all of my PMS? Probably not. And that's cool, you know, but like, it's way better than it used to be. My cramps, do I get cramps? I used to have severe cramps. I would throw up or at least feel like I was going to throw up sweating the whole thing. And now, you know, I'll get cramps sometimes and I'm like, okay, cool. Yep. Like general reminder. Got it. All right. Will I ever completely get rid of my cramps? Probably not. But I'm, you know, I'm okay with that. So these are the things I would tell a young woman, like, here's what to expect. And if it's outside of this kind of bell curve, we need to get you some balance other than the birth control pill. You read, you just read my mind. I know. You, I read, you just read my mind. You just read my mind. Yeah. I mean, I mean spit it out. To, yeah. To me, it's, that seems like the current status of, it's just, it's just a bandaid yeah. that a lot of young women get. And I'm, after hearing what Sarah Hill talks about with, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that the brain is still developing up until 22, 25, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have a young girl, she says, all right, my period is really horrendous. Mm -hmm. What do I do? I can't get through school because Mm -hmm. I'm so stressed or I have such dark thoughts or my bleed is so horrendous or what, you know, fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you say, okay, here's the pill. Now, if that's the case and she's 18, then from 18 to 22, She's being pumped full of these these hormones, these xenoestrogens, and her brain again is still developing. So, what is that link? Where are we messing that up for her future? For saying, okay, once you do get off the pill, if you do get off the pill, because you've decided that you know for whatever reason, are there the reverberating effects of depression or you know other things that are impacting your mental health way after, way for years after you deciding to get off the pill? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Post birth control syndrome, right? That Dr. Jolene Brighton has coined the term and written the book post because she just kept seeing it over and over and over again of these women who were on the pill and very symptomatic or had come off the pill and were very soon pretty symptomatic. And it was very um, kind of classic over and over and over again. And so that's what led her down that path of, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think we know to the full extent what the birth control is doing to women's everything. I don't think that's been fully studied the way that it should have. I'm not against any the pill, the IUD, the none of that. I'm not against any of that for reproductive rights, but I do feel like the risks are not well explained to women. What to watch out for are not well explained to women, and I think when women have symptoms, they're often blown off as something else. If you go on the pill but you end up with a lot of GI symptoms, you're not sent back to your OBGYN, you're sent to a GI doctor, you know, and now maybe you're put on something another medication like to manage your whatever it is, your heartburn, your IBS, your whatever you've got, you know, and so it, or maybe it's depression. You go on the pill and you find that your mood really tanks. You're still not sent back to your OBGYN to reevaluate the pill. You're sent more to get an SSRI, right? Something brain or psych to help with the depression that you're experiencing. I wish that was, those were more explained to women, even young teenage women, like, Hey, look, I know you want the pill right now for whatever reason, even if they're their request, but if you get these symptoms, you need to let me know because we need to reevaluate what's going on. Don't be afraid. Just let me know so that we can talk, we can talk about other options or what we can do, or maybe how it's affecting you moving forward. I like that approach of listen, be informed, 
don't say that it's an absolute no. Just just say the same thing with pharmaceuticals, right? Or just the same. Don't say absolutely no to these things. Just be informed of what the potential repercussions could be. And if you do have a symptom that flares up, then let's talk about it. Let's figure out something else. Because frankly, I mean, it's that immediate pleasure or that immediate, you know, band-aid of I need to just fix this for now, not realizing that there potentially is going to be a reverberating effects for the next 20, 30 years. And also, by the way, reverberating effects for your reproductive capabilities. Right now, this is solving your problem today, but is it potentially causing a future problem that is going to impact you quite a bit as well? Absolutely. And also, one of the things you asked earlier about things that I wish like they assume, but I wish they would, they knew like the birth control pill, when you're on the birth control pill and you get a, when you bleed, it's not a period. And I think a lot of women don't understand the mechanism of action of the birth control pill. What it does when you take the birth control pill, it works great because it tells the brain not to make hormones, not to make your female hormones. It shuts everything down. So these two hormones called FSH and LH, and they go down and talk to the ovaries and tell the ovary to make estrogen and progesterone that all gets shut down. So your own hormonal production gets taken over by the pill, the synthetic estrogens and progestins in the pill take over. Now, when you stop the pill, when you're on it and you stop it for those seven days to get your quote period, it's not a true period. It's not a period, like a period of like when you had recycling before at the direction of the brain, it's called a withdrawal bleed. So you stop the pill and the uterus just sheds as a result. It's a withdrawal from being on the pill. And then you go back on the pill and start over again. So I will have women say, I went off the pill and I stopped having my period, but I had a period every month with my, the birth control pill. I'm like, oh, it wasn't a, it was, no, you didn't. It's actually a withdrawal bleed. It had nothing to do with your brain and your ovaries. And now that you're off of it, off the pill, your brain and ovaries have not woken back up yet. And so you don't actually get a menstrual cycle. You're not cycling. You don't get a true period because the pill had taken over. And it's like mind blowing to so many women who go. I had no idea that's how the pill worked. I did not realize it was shutting down my own hormones. Yep, it's how it prevents you from becoming pregnant and does things like affect pain and how heavy you're bleeding and things like that. So the withdrawal bleed, that has nothing to do with your progesterone increasing over the course of the second part of your cycle because you're not going to increase progesterone because you haven't ovulated. Correct. So then you're shedding what specifically though in a withdrawal bleed? So you still get tissue, you still get tissue buildup in the uterus at the direction of the pill, but it's so well orchestrated by the, by the pill that when you stop the pill, let's say you choose to go off of it for whatever reason, that orchestration has been taken away. Like literally the conductor has walked out. Everyone's just like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do. As a result, you don't get that tissue buildup anymore. You don't cycle, you don't get the tissue buildup and then the bleed and then the tissue buildup and the bleed. You don't ovulate. So if you don't ovulate, you don't release an egg. If you don't release an egg, you don't make progesterone. Now your uterus can't be thick and fluffy. And so it's just this whole domino effect. So the pill still allows you to build up tissue in the uterus, but it's at the direction of the pill. And it's definitely not to encourage implantation of any kind because it's the birth control pill. What do you say to women who say, well, actually, it's quite nice that I don't have a bleed. You know, there are certain women who don't, who aren't able to cycle or who are not cycling currently. And they say, actually, I don't find that to be that big of a deal. <laughs> you know, I'm okay with it. <laughs> the, not, the not bleeding part is not the part that I worry so much about. It's the fact that they didn't make the hormones in the beginning. So in the first part of your cycle, you're estrogen heavy and we need estrogen as women. Obviously it's like Goldilocks, like too much can cause a lot of problems and too little can cause a lot of problems. Well, if you don't cycle at all, Let's say you have what's called amenorrhea. You don't. You go months without a period. 
then you don't get that estrogen. And that affects, you need estrogen for your brain, for your bones, for your collagen in your skin, for your joints, for your vaginal health, like, and, and, and. So if you're losing out on that estrogen in the first part, and then you don't ovulate, so you don't make progesterone, progesterone is what's known as our progestation hormone. It's what makes everything feel calm and relaxed and easier, less PMSy in our second half of our cycle. It helps reduce bloating. It helps with um, our skin. It helps with sleep. It helps with mood. Like in, it reduces anxiety. And now you're missing that. So the fact that you don't actually bleed is not the problem. It's the fact that you don't make any of the hormones before that. <laughs> I want you to make all of the hormones before that for your ongoing long-term health. That's the scary thing. And yeah. we see young women for a variety of reasons, whether it's extreme athleticism or under eating or PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, right? They maybe skip several months and they're more at risk for bone fractures, right? Because they're not getting that estrogen to their bones. So we have these young women who have a lot of bone issues. They have a lot of joint issues. They have a lot of sort of like memory brain issues. As we get older, it affects our heart. Estrogen's really helpful to protect us against cardiovascular disease. You may not notice it at 22, but you're going to notice it at 52 or 62. So that brain fog that we're experiencing when you know, you're know you sitting at the laptop, just doing your work and you just completely forget what you were doing or why you were doing it, that could be potentially tied to the fact that you don't you didn't cycle that month. It could. Estrogen has a lot to do with brain function. We have estrogen receptors all over our brain in different areas. They help. Estrogen helps a lot with our neurotransmitters, the hormones in our brain, and how they are made, how they signal, how they, you know, get get metabolized. Mm -hmm. And so, estrogen is a, a key component for that. So, we miss out on estrogen. We can miss out on a lot of that. Like, for example, um, too much estrogen being estrogen dominant. Let's say in the in the second half of our cycle, when we're close to our period and we have too much estrogen compared to progesterone, estrogen can reduce the amount of serotonin we make. Serotonin is traditionally tied to it's our antidepressant hormone, right? One of them. And so, if you're estrogen dominant, what happens? Well, you tend to feel more moody as you get close to your period, and you're more either angry or weepy, or you're both. But on the flip side, if you don't have enough estrogen you can't make serotonin. So now you have the same symptoms again if you skip periods or maybe as you get older and you're perimenopausal or menopausal and you notice like, what the heck? Why am I more depressed as I hit my 40s and 50s? I didn't used to be this depressed. I didn't used to be this anxious. What is this about? It's because you need those hormones in your brain to help support you. And I think estrogen also gets a tough rap also, right? It's, it's oh, I know, poor estrogen. Right. I've read a couple of books in terms of kind of xenoestrogens and yeah. there's, you know, every talks about soy and how that's not necessarily a good thing. And we're, you know, we're eating too much soy. Right. So can you just talk to that? I mean, what, what is the truth? Yeah. Behind it? Is so, it, is it really something that we should be concerned about or, or, I mean, I'm sure that the answer is yeah. depends, right? <laughs> it it but, depends, right. It depends. Yeah. The xenoestrogens. Yes. Yeah. So xenoestrogens are the chemicals in our environment, toxicants and toxicants in our environment that look like estrogen. And so a lot of them will connect to an estrogen receptor and like a key and a lock and turn it on. So maybe your body doesn't want it to be on at that moment, but you got exposed to or had a lot of plastic. You drank out of a hot plastic water bottle, got all that phthalate in you and BPA. And now that all goes to your estrogen receptors and turns them on. And so that can affect 
everything, your, your cycle, your period, you know, cancer risk, lots of stuff. And so we have to be careful with xenoestrogens. Some of the xenoestrogens out there will actually increase the creation of estrogen. There's a fertilizer called atrazine. It is known to increase the production of the um, conversion of testosterone into estrogen. So it actually makes us more estrogen in our body, which a lot of women don't need. We have plenty, thank you. And mm. so we have to be very careful with these xenoestrogens. Now, soy, soy absolutely gets a bad rap. Um, I'm definitely biased against soy because I'm actually allergic to soy. I, I can't do soy at all. Not intolerant, I'm straight up allergic. So, which does make me sad because I would love to have like edamame sometimes. You know, I would love to have miso soup sometimes. I would love to have tempeh, but no, that would be a really bad thing. So when I tell people, if they're like, well, can I have soy? I'm like, I suggest try to stick to the organic, try to stick to the non, the non, there you go, GMO'd, even though pretty much at this point all soy is, but try, right? And so, and so tempeh, the soy, the edamame, and maybe don't soy everything because we tend to do, we have soy milk and we have soy butter and we have soy yogurt and we have soy protein powder, we have soy bars and we have, you know, soy ice cream and we like literally, you could just like bathe in soy if you wanted to. And so like that might be a little overkill be mindful and don't convert everything you have into soy. That would be my suggestion because it is, it can be, I see, I think phytoestrogenic depending on, you know, dose and that and probably skincare products as well. Right. Which yes. have a number of different things that yes. we don't even think about. I mean, our personal skin is products, our personal product, all of it, shampoo, conditioner, any kind of like gel or mousse you put in your hair, everything, your cream, your eye cream, your body lotion, your hand lotion, your lip balm, what you clean your house with, all of the, you know, what you, your detergent, your dishwash soap. Yeah. All I just that. recently saw, I think it's called EWG, which yeah. is in the Environmental Working Group, I think yep. it is, yep. which you can actually find a product on their website skin and they deep. can give you, yeah, skin deep, exactly. They can tell you whether the product is good, not mm-hmm. so good, whether it's got, you know, a number of different Im- things that are going to impact your skin and potentially be absorbed through your skin and then impact your hormones. Yeah. Right. And it's really easy to use. Yeah. yeah. Just, it gives you like one to 10, I think it is on mm-hmm. a scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just stick to the, try and stick at least to the one to three mm-hmm. kind of the, the best ratings. And then, and then at least that part of your, of your, mm-hmm kind of regimen is, is yeah. a little bit cleaner. And you can see that becoming more environmentally friendly, less toxicant is really catching on. You will see traditional makeup companies and shampoo companies that have their standard line and then they have their green line, right? That's mm-hmm. phthalate free and this free and that free and fragrance free and all this free, free, free because mm-hmm. the consumers are demanding it. You know, women want their, they want their Clairol shampoo, but they learn that to- all this chemicals in it are probably not good for them. And so they're now, you know, this brand has their own, their green line and they have all the like, no, no, we don't have sulfates and parabens and phthalates and all this stuff on the front. And so the consumers are, you'll, and you see it in conventional, you know, I'll see it in Costco, I'll see it in Walgreens, I'll see it in Target, I'll see it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's made, becoming much, much more mainstream, whereas it used to be, you have to like search the internet to try to find clean makeup or clean skincare. And now it's, pretty common. Kind of similar to how foods have been, you know, a lot of folks have said, look at your food, see if there's less than five ingredients in there Mm -hmm. or less than 10 ingredients and make sure that you can actually understand what they are. Mm -hmm. So a similar mindset being, being towards skincare as well. I mean, some of the things that I was using, you know, had 20 different ingredients in there and it wasn't just, you know, the fragrances, it wasn't just the other things. It was the emulsifiers. It was Mm -hmm. the things that was keeping, you know, keeping the, the components together and then also the preservatives so that it could actually stay on the, on the shelves for months 
months on end. I noticed that in my own products and slowly but surely just getting rid of them. I mean, it's an element of the more that we educate ourselves, not just getting frightened by it, because it's very, I find it very, very easy to just get either really scared about it or not know what to do, get this, this sense of paralysis of, well, I've been duped, I've been lied to, I've, you know, go down that kind of negative men- mentality rather than saying, okay, I've been, I'm lucky enough to have gotten this education, right? I'm educating myself and slowly but surely I will weed out the the things that don't work for me anymore. Right. Right. And just try things one at a time. Start with water filtration, you know, Mm -hmm. just you drink water every day, you cook, you're in your home. We're all in our home now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, buy a water filter and start filtering your water. I was reading on uh, social media and I wish I could remember whose post this was, I would credit them, but they were saying how they had a client who just did one, they were having a lot of hair loss. And they heard a podcast about how filtering water is so important. So the one thing they did, the one thing they changed was they bought a, a filter for their shower, a water, like, a, like an attachment, you know, for the, and then the shower head comes in. So the water goes through the filter and then out the shower head. And they said that one change of filtering their water, they didn't realize how bad their water was, stopped their hair loss and, wow. and it got better. And that just sort of like baby stepped them into, wow, okay, what does this mean about the water I'm drinking? What does this mean about the things I put on my body? But the one thing they changed was a water, a shower filtration, which are pretty inexpensive. You can get them on Amazon, you know, yeah. and just get out the chlorine or get out whatever's, you know, in your, in your city water and uh, our country water going in. And what happens, because people don't realize that when we get hot in the shower, that everything opens, our pores open and our follicles open. And then whatever chemical happens to be in the water, even though it's deemed safe, you know, it gets poured right into our our pores and our follicles. And that can really affect some people's hair, skin and health. And so, yeah, it doesn't have to be like you were saying, it sounds very overwhelming. And I, I tell people just one at a time, one at a time, when you run out of your laundry detergent, like buy a new one, but read labels, look up online, ask your neighbor, call your sister and see what they're using. Get on skin deep or environmental working group and look when, and you know, okay, when you run out of your toothpaste, do the same thing. Okay. When you run out of your deodorant, like just this step-by-step process, like, okay. And I feel like one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of your, your posts is you talk about kind of the importance of light, water, magnetism, (laughs) the importance of a circadian rhythm. Yes. Can you touch on that? Yeah, it's like probably my favorite. Um, when people ask me what my number one, you know, hack, health hack is, I'm like, it's free, it's easy, use the light in the dark, it solves a world of problems. So our brain works on a circadian rhythm, which means we are creatures who are supposed to be up in the daylight and down in the darkness, right? At nighttime. So that's a natural rhythm. We're up in the sun, down with the moon. So what sets your circadian rhythm is this group of genes called the clock genes, appropriately enough. And they are entrained by the light. So we need light first thing on waking. We want full spectrum light. We want sunshine. We want brightness, a full spectrum light bulb, not fluorescent, but full spectrum. That's what we're going for on waking. So I tell people, open your blinds, open your curtains, go outside for a couple minutes, turn on your full spectrum light box and get exposure for 10, 15, 20 minutes to the light. That's what entrains these genes that you get your butt up in the morning. When you get your butt up in the morning, what it does is it sets off a cascade to reduce inflammation, improve blood sugar, help with alertness, set memory from what you did the day before, which is great, reduce autoimmunity. It does all these cool things. At night, 
the darkness is what resets a dysfunctional circadian rhythm. Like think the easiest example is jet lag. You travel somewhere, you travel from the East Coast to the West Coast, that's a three hour backwards you know, change for you, you get jet lag. So what you need are the light and the dark to entrain you to where you are physically, geophysical location, but reset the fact that you're totally disrupted. You're three hours off. The same can happen though in your own house. You go to bed late, you don't sleep that well, right? You wake up multiple times. And so you get a completely dysfunctional rhythm. And so you use the light in the dark to reset it. So sleep in complete darkness, wear a light or wear a sleep mask, cut out all the lights, make sure your neighbor's light isn't coming in through your window, you know, evaluate all that stuff. And it can be really, really helpful. And the earth, you know, turns, so we're going to get light and dark. You can't really help it. So just use it to your advantage. So what do you say then to those people who are saying, well, I'm a night owl. I like to stay up really late. I get my creativity then. I go to bed until, you know, at two, three in the morning. And then Mm -hmm. I just, I'm a night owl. And so therefore I then wake up at 11 o'clock in the day. You know, what's your thought on that? So there's a whole sub-study of this, of the circadian rhythm, where they look at those people. In fact, I think there's a book, and the name is escaping me. You take a quiz, and he calls you by different animals. So you're, yeah, you're like you a wolf, a dolphin. Yeah, so I'm a lion. Yeah, a lion. So I'm yeah. a lion, and so which means I'm not a night owl. I function better sort of in the morning and then, and then through the day. So for the night owls, though, I just ask them, like, what are your big symptoms? What's going on for you? How are you feeling? How is your inflammation? How is your infection? How is your autoimmune? How is your blood sugar? How is your alertness? Everything is fine, 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 fine. Like they're like, yeah, I do great. I wake up at 11 and I do great. I'm pretty alert pretty quickly. You know, what have you, then I'm not so worried about them. What, who I'm worried about are the people that are struggling. They stay up late. They push it late. Like, let's say they're not a night owl, but they're an entrepreneur. Let's say they're not a night owl, but they're a parent who puts their kid to bed and then gets their second wind and continues to do whatever at night, either, you know, pay bills, get on the computer, watch TV. That's the late at night work their business. And so they're a forced night owl. And then they get up in the morning and they're exhausted and they aren't functioning well and they have autoimmunity or their joints hurt or they just feel inflamed and puffy. Their blood sugar is all off. I'm like, okay, the night owl thing is not working for you. (laughs) We need to follow the real circadian rhythm in that case. I need you to stop getting your second wind and stop continuing after you put the kids to bed after dinner. And I, I educate this the most probably to entrepreneurs because we're mm-hmm. the most guilty, right? Mm-hmm. We're just always on, often always on, and it can affect our sleep. I think that's a common thing, especially with women. I, I really do. I mean, I'm biased, I suppose. But yes, with entrepreneurs, with women, it's the, okay, I need to go, go, go. I need to be, I need to kind of be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yeah, so I find that there's a lot of women who will tell me that, you know, they're they're going through the day and they're exhausted through mm-hmm. the day. And then around 6, 7 p.m. at night, all of a sudden, yeah. they just skyrocket. And they have a, a kind of energy yeah. that, they say, okay, I can't go to bed at 10 o'clock right. at night. So what's the protocol? What would you recommend? Uh, not as a doctor. I mean, obviously it's not medical advice. So for them, um, st- I'm still working with the light in the dark. So I'm like, look, when you get up in the morning, I need light exposure on you immediately. I need you to go outside. I need you to open your drapes. I need you to use a full spectrum light box, whatever you do. And whatever you do, whatever your practitioner has told you to take, let's say, whether it's you know supplements, it's a multivitamin, it's B vitamins, it's it's adaptogenic herbs that help with you know stress response and stress resiliency. You do it in the first thirty minutes of waking, so you mm. do it right away because you want to entrain your brain that in the morning 
I get up in the morning, I get up like that's where, and it's going to take time to try to entrain this. Now for everyone listening who goes, well, I take my thyroid medication first thing in the morning. Yep. You still do that. Still take your thyroid first thing in the morning, wait 30 to 60 minutes, and then do all the morning supplements that your practitioner told you. Your thyroid is a diva. She has to be the only thing in your stomach. So let her be a diva, let her absorb, and then take your supplements. But if you're not on thyroid, then you then take it right away. Take your supplements right away. And then at night, you get the second wind. So now it will, I mean, back up through the day. Now you have to be very mindful of what are you eating? Are you, is your blood sugar all over the place? Do you go from hungry to hangry? Do you drop? Do you get that mid-afternoon, you know, fatigue and you're searching for coffee and you're sugar, searching for sugar? Just be very mindful. Are you on energy drinks? Like be mindful of those things because those are all actually backfiring and messing you up. And then you get into the night time and now I need you to do the wind down stuff. So wearing the blue light blocking glasses, right? Getting off your phone and your screens, a couple of hours before bed, doing stuff like not turning every single light on in the house, you know, start to start to bring it down a little bit, looking at calming supplements before bed, magnesium, holy basil, which is Tulsi, chamomile tea, all those sleepy time teas we see in the market, get them, drink them, use them. Milk thistle, great for the liver. Be careful of alcohol, speaking of which. So what will happen, especially now and what's going on, is that people are drinking more, right? So they're at home and they're stressed and they're like, I'm just going to have a glass of wine and take the edge off or just to, to, to socially distance with my glass of wine. And what they don't realize is that alcohol and that sugar is affecting how we process through the night. Mm-hmm. And it can be very waking, especially as women get older, right? They hit their 30s and their 40s and they're like, I can't handle alcohol like I used to. I'm like, I know, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Maybe knock that off, you know, maybe be careful and how often you're doing that. Be careful of sugar before bed. It's your blood sugar up and then your blood sugar down and that's going to wake you up. And so I'm doing a lot of mindful things with these people to train them that they get up in the morning and they go to bed at night. And just like we said earlier, and I agree with you, I think a lot of women are the caretakers of their household even. And so they get that burst of energy and they're like, okay, now I'm going to do laundry. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to pay the bills and now I'm going to wipe up the kitchen and now I'm going to prepare for tomorrow. Okay. Now I'm going to meal prep, you know, like if you're homeschooling now, you know, like you're now, now I'm going to pick up after the kids and now I'm going to get ready to homeschool tomorrow and now I'm going to get ready for work and, 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 and and now they're all like jazzed up. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, it's 11 o'clock. Somehow I need to go to bed. And it's hard for a lot of us to go from do it mode and mo, you know, like on it mode and type a mode to now I need you to be calm and relaxed and go to sleep. Yeah, exactly. I think Matthew Walker, who wrote the book, Why We Sleep, he says it beautifully of saying, you know, we have a wake up routine usually, right? You wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you've got, you know, you you have your coffee, whatever it is. We as adults don't usually have a wind down and go to mm-hmm. sleep routine. We had it when we were kids, right? You would bathe your, your baby, you have night, like you, right. you, have you read a book. book. I mean, exactly. <laughs> and why don't Snuggled. we do that now? You know, why, why is that? It's work, 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 work. And then all of a sudden, 11, you know, 11 o'clock or whenever your bedtime, bedtime is, then you, which is usually just at the point of exhaustion <laughs> that you just say, okay, I'm out for the day. And then you expect that you're going to be able to fall asleep very quickly mm-hmm. and stay asleep and get the rest. Right. But in reality, right? I mean, if you've just been on your phone and you don't have blue blocking glasses, or if mm-hmm. you don't have, you know, the, the app on your phone to make your, to make it red, right. then and you have all these lights around you, then you're getting that blue light straight into your eyes, which is impacting your melatonin, right? 100%. Yeah, suppressing it for sure. 
yeah. which is and which is not helping you sleep, right? Because I mean, melatonin. I mean, can you talk to that? Yeah. So melatonin generally is made about an, it starts to come out about an hour or two before you would naturally go to bed, and it's. Whereas cortisol is our sun, melatonin is our moon. And so melatonin comes out for sleep. So it's really important for onset of sleep. And if you have a lot of stimulation and you have a lot of blue light in the eyes, specifically you have, um, they're called melanopsin in your eyes that register this blue light, um, your cortisol is up and cortisol is tougher and stronger than melatonin. So it will suppress melatonin. And now maybe you don't get a melatonin rise until later in the night and you wake up groggy because melatonin can make you feel kind of groggy. So you get this sort of delayed onset production of melatonin, which leads to a delayed onset of when you when you would feel awake, but your alarm goes off at six, but you still have the melatonin hangover. So now you kind of wake up groggy and by about eight, a couple cups of coffee, you know, you're like, okay, now I feel human again. This is good. Whereas if you had started the night before with better hygiene habits, then you maybe over time wake up at six, at least more functional. <laughs> you're better and ready to go when it is it when it comes to melatonin. Yeah. And so we got to be careful. It seems so simple almost, doesn't it? You know, it, in the sense that- People hate it because yeah. they just want a pill. They're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get off my phone. I don't want to wind down at night. It, I don't want to get off Netflix. You know, like I'm watching all these scary shows. I don't want to stop doing that. I don't want to get up at, in the morning and, you know, have to t- have to waste 10 minutes enjoying the fact that it's light out. It almost seems, yeah, too easy and too, uh, I don't know, woo-woo or stupid. And I'm like- it's literal science. It's literally how your clock genes work. Like they mm. want, they function off of light and dark. They won a Nobel prize two years ago. Like just give them what they want, <laughs> light and dark. Stop yeah. fighting it. <laughs> right. And also, I mean, for those people who are saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm taking sleepy pills or I take exogenous melatonin, you know, and, and I'm fine. I mean, shouldn't we actually be Maybe. able to sleep? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. You know, that's we what's as, hard. We as humans, we as animals, women, which we are, ultimately, we should be able to sleep and and have a good night's rest and not have to take something externally because our body is not producing it on time. Right. right. Yeah. A lot of those sleep pharmaceutical medications, yes, they will knock you out, but they do mess up. You, you don't necessarily get through all of your stages of sleep. And so therefore, you may not wake up rest and restored and healed like you should being off the medication. So that can be really challenging for people. And it can be challenging for things like their own melatonin production and their own cortisol production. And then they want to get tested, but they're on this sleep pill, like Ambien is an example, or Sonata. And they're like, oh, should I stop the pill before I do this extra testing? I'm like, well, if you do, probably won't sleep because you're now addicted to it. That's what you rely on to sleep. And whether you need it or not at this point, you know, if you pop that pill, you sleep. And so if I take the crutch away, mentally, it's going to mess you up. Mentally, you're going to go, oh, I'm not taking the pill. I'm not going to sleep. So it becomes really challenging. Yeah. So for those types of people who are on sleeping medications, do you, as in your practice, would you just start to wean them off and put them on something like a, like a natural form of dep- again, melatonin, yeah. valerian, yeah. and then wean them off of that? Yeah. It depends on the person. Yeah. And the good thing is a lot of them like, like Ambien and Sonata and what have you, you, you can do a lot of things at the same time. And so I can ramp one up while I'm decreasing. Well, I'm working to decrease the medication and figure out the cause. 
Mm. Yeah. Unlike other medications, for example, like an SSRI, so an antidepressant medication, that's be very careful. Like you can't, you have to be very careful on, you know, people go, oh, I'll just take 5-HTP because that will raise serotonin too. I'm like, no, actually you have to be very careful. You could really harm yourself being on 5-HTP and on an SSRI. You just have to be mindful of that. So, but the sleep medications are a little different. And so I generally find that the herbs and the nutrients that are more calming that I can start to ramp them up as I'm ramping down. Again, like you said, light is the big biggest is one of your biggest hacks. Mm-hmm. What other type of kind of the big ones that you see really impact people the, the quickest yeah. most? Uh, how you breathe is the big one, right? So mouth breathers, disordered breathing, snores, even light snores. Um, people have uh, sleep apnea, hugely impactful negatively on your health. If you're not getting oxygen in properly to your brain, you're not going to be healthy. It's oxygen. It's oxygen to the brain. Like what does the brain need? The brain needs oxygen. <laughs> and so if you are sleeping with somebody and they snore all the time, know that that's completely affecting their brain health and all the hormones downstream. And there's so much research on this. It's, it's crazy. If you yourself are a snorer or you're a mouth, routine mouth breather, you when you walk, you breathe through your mouth. When you're sitting there on your computer, you're breathing through your mouth. You need the air to go through your nostrils. You need the warming effect to help nitric oxide. It gets your oxygen appropriately versus breathing in this way, which is different. It's a huge night and day difference. And so we see a lot on the hackers who'll do mouth taping, you know, right? So mouth taping with the, there's companies out there that provide mouth tape, um, or you can do like surgical tape, but it's exactly what it sounds like. It's literally taking <laughs> appropriate tape and taping your lips, you know, sort of gently closed at night. So you don't actually open your mouth and start breathing out of your mouth. And it forces you to breathe out of your nose. And what's interesting is even the people who day mouth breathe, have, I know have started mouth, they, when they're working on their computer, like they will tape their mouth shut. And it's to remind them, use your nose, use your nose, use your nose, because they will just sit there and, you know, sound kind of like an ogre is they're breathing out of their mouth and not realize it. Yeah. And that makes a huge impact. If you have sleep apnea, you have to get that evaluated. If you're a snoring person, you have to get that evaluated. No joke. I haven't thought about this. And now as we're, we're talking, I'm trying to figure right, out like, how I'm breathing. <laughs> do I breathe out of my mouth? I know. And it's, I become, and it's funny as I become really conscious of it. Like my husband, you know, if he starts mouth breathing, I'm like, and I, he knows this, it, he's practiced with the mouth tape before and he's aware of mouth breathing, but now I pointed out to him, I'm like your yeah. mouth breathing again. He's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but right, I first so- learned about mouth breathing from Mike Mutzel years ago. And since then I've read so much research just about how the lack of oxygen from our inappropriate breathing to our brain affects everything downstream. And I'm focused mainly on hormones and hormonal outcome. That's a big hack. The other one is mitochondrial health. I don't think people realize hormones are made in the mitochondria of our cells. And so that we learn in school that mitochondria are our cellular powerhouses and they really are. They make our energy, but it's also the first step of where hormones are made. And so if we are exposed to a lot of toxins and if we're missing nutrients that are important to our mitochondria, if we're doing things that, you know, affect mitochondria, that will also downstream affect our hormones. We won't be able to make them as well. So yeah, mitochondrial support and health and, you know, nourishment is really, really critical for hormone production. Yeah. And I think I wasn't aware actually that hormones were created in the mitochondria. That's, that's new to me. So you have a protein called star protein and it binds to cholesterol. That's the very first step. It comes to the mitochondria. And then the next thing it makes is pregnenolone. And then pregnenolone goes out to the endoplasmic reticulum to get totally nerdy. And then some of those hormones circle back around like cortisol and finish off in the mitochondria. So, but you always start in the mitochondria. So if your mitochondria 
are few and far between, or if they're sick and unhealthy, then you're going to struggle to get that first step right. And you could be struggling to have the rest of your hormones right. And you know, we know with mitochondria, like fatigue is a really big symptom for poor mitochondrial health, especially um, like muscular fatigue, you know, muscular weakness and stuff like that. That's where yep. a lot of our mitochondria are. I think a lot of the research that I've seen in terms of mitochondria goes back to what we were just talking about before of light, water, magnetism, kind yep. of those three elements being so vital, so important to your mitochondria. So making sure that you're getting good light, making sure that you know all these devices, which are kind of sucking electrons from us, right? Mm-hmm. All the non-native EMFs, you know, going out and having grounding, which is walking barefoot, which again, sounds very woo-woo right. and sounds really just hippy-dippy, but, <laughs> but trust us. Kind of. yeah, there's a lot yeah. of science. And then, and then probably also the, the element of, of cold and cold water and saying, okay, well, that also is fairly, is free and kind of difficult to do, I guess, in the beginning when you start taking cold showers, but mm-hmm. that also can have an impact to your mitochondria. And then it seems that now a downstream impact to your hormones. Uh, absolutely. Lifting weights, right? Building muscle, weightlifting, not cardio, but weightlifting, good for the mitochondria. Well, I know that we can have hours and hours and hours <laughs> of this conversation. Yes. This is fascinating. So hopefully this is just part one of, of a dialogue with you, but this is tremendous. So what's one health hack that you've done in the past that maybe didn't work as well as you thought? You know, oh, for- keto. <laughs> Keto, okay. Keto, cutting carbs completely. I, actually, I should back up. I, and I don't mean this, I'm not like knocking the keto community, but I have gone, nope, both times I tested to make sure I was in ketosis and I was. I did check my ketones. I tried keto twice and both times keto makes me the meanest, most bitchiest person ever. The first time I was just doing it wrong. So the second time when I did it, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it much better. I've done more research. I'm further along. No, no, I am not a pleasant person to be around when I am on keto. So I do not do that. (laughs) I am not a green free person and all that. I've had a similar situation. So again, it's an N of one, you know, for some people they swear by it and it's tremendous for them. And there's been a lot of amazing research, but for others, maybe not so much. Not so much yet. Boy, I get, I get a lot of push. Like you should be, I can't believe you eat, you know, carbohydrates. I'm like, trust me, I have done it twice and you do not want to be around me. Yeah. You want me to eat the carbs. (laughs) This is for your benefit, not mine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What would you tell your 15 year old self? Um, honestly, I would tell her just to go ahead and stop gluten now. (laughs) So I have celiac. And so I figured it out. I think I was in my late twenties, early thirties when I figured it out. And man, if I could have figured it out at 15, I think that would have made a world of difference just to know then to give me a big jump. But the other thing I would tell my 15 year old self is you're on the exact right track. Just follow your intuition and it's going to be great. Yeah. Just give up gluten. (laughs) I really like the part about intuition as well, because I think oftentimes I feel like I've only started listening to it now Mm, and this mm -hmm. is in my third decade. So, (laughs) you know, it's, yeah, listening to that, that it takes time. That's a a lesson. I feel like it's a lesson that you only get to later on. I agree. Oh, I, yeah. Just time and experience, right? Then you're going to trust yourself and then turns out you're usually right all the time. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about women's health, research, anything of the above with respect to women. Yeah. That's so funny. When I lecture, I always tell women all the time that I would like to be the goddess of women's health as it relates to like this stuff, hormones. I don't want to be the goddess of like everything around women's just around like hormones would be great. So I'd say the two, the two big things that I would wave a wand over that I get the 
biggest questions on. One is around fertility. I would love to have the ability that we'd like press a button, flip a switch, and yes, we can get pregnant or no, we would choose not to get pregnant at this time. I think that would save a lot of heartache. It would answer a lot of questions and it would not require us then, of course, to go use the pill, the patch, the ring, the IUD, what have you, and then be at risk for the fallout of that as well. So that's one thing I would change is if we could just have a button, that'd be great. The second thing I would change is that I wish perimenopause would be so much smoother and well-respected for women. That as women get older and age gracefully, that it's it's actually revered as opposed to, you know, a lot of people are horrified <laughs> and so they don't want to get older and they fear getting older and they they have a lot of these feelings of they're not what they used to be when they were younger and they don't recognize that it's their next great phase in life. And mostly because the symptoms suck. If the symptoms were amazing, you know, like if our hair got like lush and luxurious, you know, if we lost 10 pounds instead of put on 10 pounds, if we, our energy, like if everything just got better, then we would look forward to menopause as opposed to now with the hot flashes, the night sweats and the vaginal dryness and the no sex drive and the brain fog and the, you know, the skin thinning and wrinkling. Like, it's like, ew, who wants to do that? And so that's what I wave my wand is to be like, let's revere this transition and let's, let's really educate how to make it as healthy and, and, um, and happy as possible moving forward. So I know you said one thing, but I had to pick two. It's all good. Fertility and menopause. (laughs) I like it. I like it. That element of revering the changes Mm -hmm. is a big one, you know, and there is, you know, in older cultures, it's always been that as someone gets older, they become the sage, they become Mm -hmm. the, the wise one. Mm -hmm. And, and because of the different experiences that they've had through life and perhaps going back to that, hearkening back to, to those cultures, which kind of had it right. Whereas now it's just, eh, you know, this is, this is something that you need to deal with on your own. Last question is what has been one teacher or book that has changed your way of thinking? It's called Estrogen Matters by Drs. Blooming and Tavris. I don't know if you can see that. Estrogen Matters. You said earlier, you know, that estrogen gets a really bad rap and it does. It's definitely like Goldilocks, too little or too much can be a problem. But Estrogen Matters is a book written about estrogen as women do get older and maybe head into perimenopause and estrogen uh, hormone replacement therapy, HRT. And it just really goes into a lot of the science and the research and the literature around estrogen and how important it is for women. And I was always generally very pro-estrogen, even though I was a minority. A lot, you know, a lot of her like, oh, it causes breast cancer, like you're crazy. And then this book really just sort of summarized a lot of the literature to be like, actually. <laughs> estrogen is pretty important for the female body and here's why it actually it does get a pretty bad rap around breast cancer and and here's why and it's not all that meets the eye and as subsequently as a result there's a lot of really cool research happening right now around estrogen and women and even in the dr Mascani's alzheimer's research and she's starting to look at estrogen and talks about estrogen and its role in the brain just in general and so that's just really helped me is is a woman myself right who's getting older not to fear estrogen, you know, just because I have estrogen doesn't mean I'm going to get breast cancer. Um, It's actually really helpful. And I probably want estrogen for as much as I can to age gracefully, but not even just the look, but like how my heart ages, how my bones age, how my joints age, my brain ages, you know, that's really important to me because longevity runs in my family. So I'd like it to be you know, pretty smooth, pretty tip top. (laughs) So yes, Estrogen Matters is a great book 
for me just to like summarize and pull all that together and quote a lot of research, which was wonderful. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Carrie, thanks again. This is incredible. I mean, I, you do such a beautiful job just blending together the science, the intuition, the old, you know, old school thinking or the woo woo of, of light, of water, you know, of of these things that are natural. Um, I just really like how you're able to combine all of them together and really have a base of science. To, to back it up. Yeah. So thank you for everything that you're doing. You, we can find you at Dr. Carrie Jones, right? Mm-hmm. On Instagram, mm-hmm. as well as the Dutch test. Yep. I'll make sure that we link in the show notes and hopefully we'll get you back again on. Absolutely. On yeah. I appreciate it. This has been tremendous. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know and please share it. Part of Wealthco's mission is to share the wealth. Each of us has a tremendous influence on those around us, and sharing info from these experts may be the thing that your friend is missing. Take a screenshot of this episode and tag us on social media at wealth.co. Our website houses our forum, where women from around the globe are discussing their latest health hacks. You can also get a free ebook there as well. Check it out, www.wealth.community. Enjoy. Until our next exploration, stay well.